What's up, everyone? You're listening to the Anthro Alert podcast, which is the recording of our live show, Anthro Alert. You can now listen at your leisure and at your convenience. If you're new here on Anthro Alert, this is where Renee and I, your hosts, and sometimes a guest, analyze, break down, and discuss different topics each week anthropologically. Enjoy. first year and I uh, my research focuses on refugees and migrants in Sicily. I was an AmeriCorps volunteer in 2010. Um, I served two years in AmeriCorps in Apopka, Florida. I worked with uh, the farm worker community and migrant youth. I worked at Apopka Middle School and developed a program called the Advancement Labs uh, for grades 6, 7, and 8. Well, AmeriCorps is uh, very similar to the Peace Corps, except it's domestic. It's only within the United States. There's several different programs that uh, do various things across the country, and I worked with Notre Dame AmeriCorps Mm. that does work in Florida um, Mm -hmm. and in other locations as well. Mm. Great. And so you... Can you tell us a little bit more about what you did as a volunteer working with, with uh, farm workers and, and others? Well, I mostly worked with uh, kids at the middle school oh, okay. and tutored, um, worked to bring up their grades, help them with their homework, um, mm. did various things to assist teachers. But we also did work with migrants in the community, uh, undocumented migrants, helping mm-hmm. them with paperwork, citizenship classes, English classes, I ran a youth group for uh, for kids over the summer um, to help them keep occupied during the summer and stay out of trouble. Mm. Uh, we did various activities and field trips throughout Florida, and it was a, a lot of fun. Yeah, Popka, that's uh, that's out near Orlando, is that right? Yes, it's it's about thirty minutes outside of Orlando. So, um, a pop, I don't know if anyone's familiar with Lake Apopka, but it's a, it's got two super fun sites. So there's a lot of pollution out there, and a lot of the farm workers have experienced a lot of illnesses due to their work with pesticides um, in Lake Apopka. Mm. Um, and so there's a lot of um, issues in that community with with the history there. Mm. Uh, could you explain just like for the people who do not know what a super fun site is? Oh, yes. Um, it is a site that's classified by the government as so toxic and polluted that they have this special classification for it called Superfund. And so they work to try to clean that up. Um, and Lake Apopka has two of those sites where the runoff from farming got into the water and polluted the lake and created a lot of environmental issues. Hmm. So did this experience have any – did it influence at all what you ultimately chose to, to study as a graduate student? It did to some extent. However, I already knew that I wanted to study refugees and migrants in Italy because I went to Sicily in 2010 on a study abroad trip and volunteered with refugees there. And that's how I decided um, to research refugees for my master's research. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, it did reaffirm my decision. So I went in 2010 to Sicily and then came back and served two years in AmeriCorps working with migrants, and it confirmed that that was what I wanted to study. And so was that study a broad trip explicitly to go and work with 
with migrants or was that something you chose to do once you got there? No, actually, it was just by chance. Uh, I went there to study art history and archaeology for my last semester as an undergrad. And it was a volunteer opportunity that was available, and I chose that opportunity and been working with refugees and migrants ever since. Hmm. Wow. Some things just kind of fall fall together like that. Yeah, yes. that, that's exactly what I was going to say, like fall into place. But yeah. fall together, fall into place, oh, wow, cool. <laughs> All right, so uh, how long did you stay there um, during your study abroad trip? I was there for five weeks. Okay, so a little bit of time to maybe establish some relationships and and things like that for, because I imagine those were your future contacts then for your master research. Yes, I have a good friend there that I volunteered with uh, who is a local immigration activist there, and I keep in touch with him with my research now, and he's helped me out a lot with, my field sites and finding people to do research with in Sicily. Mm. Um, and he's very active in the community as well. So I've mm. definitely kept in touch with him and other people that I met that lived at the center that have now moved out. Mm. Okay. Well, I think we're going to, uh, we're going to take a short break here. Uh, we're going to pause the conversation because when we come back, we're going to dive into what, uh, Russell actually researched during her master's program. And we're going to, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of it. All right, so that's right. you got to fight for your right. Uh, if you're listening to us live and you hear the radio, the BC Boys playing, you got to fight for your right. In, in uh, this case, we are um, we're talking about how anthropology helps people do that. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm making a search there. But you are listening to Anthro Alert, and Anthro Alert is on uh, Bulls Radio WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa 1620 AM on campus and streaming worldwide on TuneIn and on the TuneIn app, so be sure that you are tuned into us. All right, so um, now we've been having a bit of a conversation about, uh, or with Russell here, and she's been telling us a little bit about her work as an AmeriCorps volunteer and how that helped kind of situate her and set up the very early groundwork for her master's her master's uh, thesis, and um, that's actually where we're going to take the conversation next. Right, and so the title of your thesis was Life After the Boat, Understanding the Needs of Refugees in Syracuse, and that, did I pronounce that right? Mm-hmm. Syracuse. Syracuse. Syracuse, okay, and that's Syracuse, Sicily, for individuals that may not know where that is situated, and so can you just, you know, tell us about your experience doing your research and, you know, what your what your master's research was all about. Okay, well, if I can, I'd like to open up with a quote from one of the participants in my research because I like to share their voices as well. Mm. Um, and this is, I think, a very important quote uh, for people to understand, to begin to understand refugees. Mm-hmm. So this is from an interview with Elijah, um, a pseudonym, um, in 2016. Um, and he was a 16-year-old boy from the Gambia. So he said, uh, quote, I don't know this interview, the place where you share this interview, so I want you to know and I want you to write everything so those people who help refugees know that we need too much. So what I want to tell you, life is not easy. A person that leaves their country, it's not easy and we're suffering. All those refugees, something happened in the past because if something never happened to you, you don't come here. You never put your life in the dangerous sea if you don't have a reason. Because this sea is 50-50, because you can die or you can survive. But one thing I want to tell you is that we need help. We are tired. Life is not easy, and we are suffering. 
So Elijah is just one of many um, unaccompanied minors that travel from Libya each year across the Mediterranean Sea to Italy. And um, my research focused heavily on unaccompanied minors, but I also uh, did work with adult men and adult women as well. And uh, women also often had infants um, after they arrived. Mm. And so what, what um, I guess, what was the, the demographics of the individual, individuals that you worked with? What uh, countries of origin mainly were they, were they from? Okay, so my participants' uh, stated nationalities are the Gambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Mali, Senegal, Liberia, Tunisia, Egypt, Somalia, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. Uh, most of my participants were unaccompanied minors, as I said, um, and their ages ranged from 14 to 65. And so um, what were the specific questions that you were asking? So I had two research questions that I focused on, um, and those were, um, excuse me, I'm sorry. Hmm. Right. And so... Um, I, I mainly focused on what, what are the experiences hmm. of um, refugees and migrants after they arrive mm -hmm. to second reception centers in Sicily, and these second reception centers are where refugees and migrants live after they receive emergency and medical assistance, mm -hmm. um, examining the challenges. And then my second research question focused on how current migration policies affect newly arrived refugees and asylum seekers. Can, can I ask a question for clarification? Mm -hmm. So so when a refugee lands on the, um, you know, arrives on the shores of Italy, like what's what's the first... Like, what, what happens first? Well, they typically don't actually land on the shore. So most of the time they're rescued by NGOs or the Italian Coast Guard and then taken. Um, and when they're taken um, to Sicily or other parts of Italy, they're taken to what's called first reception centers where they receive emergency medical care, first aid, um, clothing. Um, they don't receive a lot of supplies. Um, and they're actually only supposed to stay there for 72 hours. But because there have been so many um, asylum seekers and migrants arriving in Italy, this can typically take one to two months before refugees are sent to second reception centers that house um, migrants and refugees while they wait for official documents. So the first reception center is kind of like a triage where they just kind of kind of get, you know, it shouldn't be any more than, you know, three days. And then from there, they're, they're kind of put into a, a slightly more longer term a housing place. Yes, and these are very small typically. Um, they're not like the refugee camps that you might see on the news that are you know, huge, uh, some of them in Greece that you might see. These are kind of hidden away in apartment buildings or offices. They might house 10 to 15 individuals. Uh, there's some larger um, refugee centers that are outside of the city limits but still in the province of Syracuse and they might house 150, but they tend to be much smaller than we might normally think of. Mm. And so, you know, you, kinda, you, you told us what initially you were, the questions you were asking. And so can you, can you break down those, those questions a little bit individually and, and um, you know, tell us just what you found, um, you know, as you wrote up your thesis, you know, what, what were you finding to answer, answer this question? Okay, sure. Well, I found that 
practices and policies in Sicily do not actually benefit refugees. Uh, the humanitarian system for refugees in Syracuse is complicated and uh, informal NGO practices often circumvent the guidelines for national and international refugee policy. There's often inefficiencies, shortages, and corruption that adversely affects refugees and migrants when they seek services from second reception centers. Uh, I found that uh, there are a lot of things that are lacking for refugees. They don't receive proper health care, proper food, basic services such as the proper amount of water each day, uh, toothbrushes, toothpaste. Uh, they're mistreated often by employees at these centers. Um, and also I found that there is not a, a lot of information about what happens to individuals after they arrive in centers, um, which I think makes this kind of work even more important because it's kind of like the out of sight, out of mind. Um, mm -hmm. We know what happens with refugees and migrants from seeing the boats on the news, but we don't often know what happens to them after they arrive in Italy, uh, and I think that that is very important. I did also find that there was one center that provided excellent services to refugees and migrants, so um, they represent a positive example of good aid. Um, in second reception centers where they help um, unaccompanied minors and they provide proper services such as helping them with language, employment assistance. Um, they let them cook their own food. Um, so that center serves as a model for other centers in the region. And so did you have any particular, I don't know, was, I guess, the goal of your thesis was one of them to make recommendations for these centers or, um, you know, did you have any recommendations or was that not really something that you had, um, had in mind during, like as you were writing your thesis? Yes, I did, um, focus on recommendations for the center specifically after I found the second reception center that provided good aid, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Because I wasn't expecting to find that, because I already knew that a lot of reception centers in, in Sicily did not really help migrants and refugees. Yeah. So after I found this center, I, I felt like they could be used as a model for good aid. And I actually have an article coming out about that mm. in Human Organization in July, mm. um, showing how this this example, uh, the center, La Vita e Bella, which means life is beautiful, um, serves as an example of how to help refugees improve their situation once they af after they arrive rather than continuing to marginalize them as other centers do. Mm -hmm. And so what were some of the specific recommendations that you had? Can you remember it's any? It's really just basic things mm -hmm. that you would assume that the centers already provide, like right. I said, such as language classes, Italian classes. A lot of the centers don't provide Italian classes, or they have Italian classes that are a 30-minute walk. Mm -hmm. um, they take them out for job training. Um, they actually give them what's called pocket money. Um, so the Italian government is supposed to send pocket money to these centers to give to refugees. And it's it's called pocket money because it's really just a small amount of money that they're able to use to buy just little things that they might need, like a calling card to call family members that might be worried about them. Mm -hmm. But that money doesn't usually make it to refugees. Um, however, at La Vita Bella, it does. They receive everything that they need um, 
and the boys there, they were all happy, whereas the boys at other centers uh, that I visited reported that they did not receive adequate health care. They did not receive adequate food. They often became sick and mm-hmm. uh, from the food and were not able to go and see a doctor. Um, Do you find that there's maybe um, a, a danger to you know this center that actually is providing the care that refugees need and and being like overwhelmed because they are the only potentially the only organization actually offering these services so like is there a danger of them become like getting too many refugees to the point where they now can't maybe offer as many of these services no actually because um these centers aren't necessarily overcrowded um they are but there is a limit on the number that that live at the center. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in a lot of the rooms, they're very small rooms with four people living in them. Mm-hmm. But there is a maximum number that live in the center. So that's a good point. Um, but they're not able to take in other refugees. Okay. However, I did um, in, a, in an interview with the director, they they do sometimes feel a little bit overwhelmed because they want to help more people than they can. Mm -hmm. So occasionally they will even take people into their own home until they can provide them proper assistance and find them what they need. Mm -hmm. And so what, what are the particular difficulties in, in working with this population of asylum seekers, either, you know, with the population themselves or just the situation in general, maybe, uh, you know, people that work at the organizations, what are some of the challenges that you face? I'd say one of the first challenges is actually finding these centers because, like I said, they're often hidden away in apartments or office buildings. But my friend that I mentioned earlier, uh, Ramsey, a a local immigration activist, um, was very instrumental in helping me to establish my field sites and, and locate these field sites to speak with refugees and migrants. Um, one thing that was difficult about initially speaking with people um, had to do with gender. A lot of times women are are trafficked and experience a lot of abuse along their route from sub-Saharan Africa through Libya to Italy, and they were more hesitant to talk with me about their experiences. And I, of course, never pushed anyone to talk with me if they didn't want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always optional, and anyone can stop an interview at any time um and that's why a lot of my participants are unaccompanied minor boys is because they were more willing to speak with me than the women so that that was a little bit difficult because i wasn't really able to establish rapport with the women for them to feel comfortable enough to share their experiences Mm -hmm. um, because they have been traumatized so much and that's not to minimize the trauma that um, boys and adult men encounter it's just different um so, and another challenge I think um, is is taking on all of that um, personally, hearing these stories, and then mm-hmm. processing that emotionally because it's really difficult to hear these stories of trauma and and stay um, separate as the mm-hmm. as the separate researcher. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to be involved and help people, but you also have to maintain um, that position. of of the researcher so that's difficult as well Um, Mm -hmm. and then lastly I think something that's difficult is finding what to do to give back because I don't want to go in and just ask people to tell me their stories and not doing anything to give back to them 
But when I ask them, you know, what do they need, there are things that I can't do, such as mm -hmm. help them with their immigration documents because they're waiting for these extended periods of time for permits of stay um, and other documents. Um, or they say they want to come to America, um, and I can't help them with that either. So part of that was just finding little things to do here and there. Um, and it was even as simple as collecting donations um, for food. Uh, for for some of the centers where people weren't getting enough food and water. Hmm. How how did you manage that personally? How did you manage that that burden and uh, having to hear, hear these stories and and feeling you know in some way that that uh, that you should be doing more? Like how how are you able to um, handle those that those emotions those feelings? Hmm. I think I just had to know when to stop. Um, so there were some days where I would hear a story that was really intense. And then I would just stop for the day. Uh, and there were other days where I felt like I could continue to do work throughout the day. Um, but I think I really early on had to realize my limitations and understand when to take a break. Because it's easy to go out and do interviews and do field research all day long and then go back to where I was staying and try to do field notes and um transcribe interviews but i also had to maintain that self-care aspect and and just not work <laughs> sometimes mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and the other part like i said about giving donations i think that also helped me as well um because i felt better about taking action so like i said i i did a gofundme and and a lot of people responded and and helped out with donations for for these individuals, so um, we were able to buy books, um, the, a guitar for the boys at the, the Center for Minors, because they have nothing to do all day. They just sit in these centers and eat and sleep and eat and sleep, and that's pretty much it. So some of it was just trying to find things for them to do other than just sit on the couch and watch watch TV. This, I mean, this whole issue of um, migration and, and refugees and... Um it, it it really it's I mean, it's just a tragedy in regards to like human rights and and just it it really just like the 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 political world is just not in any way prepared to deal with the current state of migration uh, and, and people being forced to flee. Uh, it's it's really I mean I don't know it's it's very upsetting. Really, right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It definitely is, and um, it's troublesome, the, the discourse um, a lot of times that's going on um, about migrants and refugees because a lot of times um, people don't quite understand what's causing people to flee. And that's why I like to share that, that quote um, at the beginning because it's really dangerous traveling from sub-Saharan Africa to Italy um, and trying to make your way um, from from those countries. Um, these individuals had to cross the Sahara Desert. They had to uh, arrange um, for travel across the desert. People often die in the desert. They are often uh, falsely imprisoned in Libya. Um, and there's uh, CNN did a report a little bit ago about uh, slavery occurring in Libya right now. And I don't know if anyone listening has seen that, but if if you haven't, you should look at it because um, my participants actually did 
that happened to them. Um, a lot of my participants were sold to farmers until the farmers were tired of them working for them, well, working on their mm-hmm. farm. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't quite working. But the boys were actually happy because they were fed. They had food and a place to stay, and they weren't tortured in prison anymore. Until they were finally forced on these boats that a lot of them sink, and a lot of them witnessed their friends and family die. Yeah, very very serious stuff, very serious uh, conversation we're having. We're going to take a very short break. Um, again, keep it locked on Bulls Radio. Uh, stay tuned. Hello, everyone. Hello, Bulls. Thanks for staying tuned. Uh, thanks for coming back and joining us here on Anthro Alert on WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus and streaming worldwide at TuneIn.com and the TuneIn app. So you can go check out Antho Alert, as well as all the other fantastic Bulls radio programs on those streams. Yeah, there's a bunch. I mean, they're all good, too, so check them out. Yep, and when there isn't one, it's just 24 hours of music, so yeah. can't go wrong. If you like music, you like Bulls radio. Hey. All right, so we're back with Russell. We're going to continue the conversation um, talking about um, migration, specifically um, migration from Libya to Sicily. Um, and some of some of the challenges that she has faced along the way uh, doing that type of research. Um, and so we've been focusing um, on her master's work, but now she's a Ph.D. student. And so going to start transitioning into, um, you know, what what the research is going to look like as a as a dissertation. And so can you can you tell us about. You know, how are you thinking through your plan to move forward um, and, you know, expanding the research that you that you did in the past to, you know, to become a, a thesis into a into a dissertation? OK, sure. Yeah, actually, I plan to return to Sicily this summer to maintain relationships with my field sites, um, with my participants and also to conduct preliminary research uh, at other sites. I'd like to explore other cities throughout Sicily to examine the variations of care for refugees. And um, I'd also like to further examine uh, unaccompanied minor refugees as well as women. As I explained earlier, it was difficult for me to establish rapport with women um, because of the trauma that they encountered. However, they do face a lot of challenges that others don't, particularly because many of them have infants um, after they arrive. So I think that when I'm there for a longer period of time during my dissertation, it will be easier for me to establish relationships with women and explore the challenges that they face in Sicily. Mm. Um, And so I I think that, that women and unaccompanied minors will probably be my focus, although I won't exclude adult men, of course, but there's a lot of there, there's a lot of missing information about uh, what happens to unaccompanied minors. Um, and actually, I have a quote uh, from the New York Times um, that uh, from Ashley Gilbertson that says, uh, "quote We don't see what happens to them on dry land once they are warehoused in camps." So I think that the aspect of the research that focuses uh, on centers that help unaccompanied minors is is very important because I, mm-hmm. I'm not the only one um, saying that we don't know <laughs> what happens to them. Mm-hmm. And so, kind of thinking through, um, I guess your your proposal and moving forward. You know, what what kind of questions do you have in mind? You know, at, at this point, 
that you would that you would like to explore during your your dissertation field work? Well, that's what I think. What I'm going to try to find out this summer um, okay. is what what questions I do want to explore, uh, because I have mainly conducted research within the city of Syracuse. I'm a little bit in the province, 30 minutes to an hour outside. But I'd like to see how it is in other locations in Sicily and see how refugees and migrants are treated um, kind of in the more rural areas of Sicily uh, to see if there are any differences in care and how the local population accepts them. Mm. Um, and I probably will de- hopefully develop these, these questions over the summer mm-hmm. after conducting this preliminary research and exploring mm-hmm. other field sites. Mm-hmm. So you you've kind of hinted at why you feel why you feel like um, focusing on unaccompanied minors is an important part uh, important aspect uh, of the research, but kind of backing up as a whole, why do you think the research that you have been doing on uh, migration, you know, where refugees end up, you know, what is their care like or life like in these camps? Why do you think that type of research is important? Well, thousands of refugees and migrants arrive to Italy each month, and poor humanitarian aid services can create future harm um, for the growing refugee population. So although they experience trauma and violence and human trafficking on their journey to Italy, they're often exploited after they arrive as well. And I think it's very important for us to understand this so that we can try to correct these problems and see where they can improve and it kind of goes back to what I was saying about the other center, La Vita Bella, that provides good humanitarian aid um, and trying to find what works, uh, what works with humanitarian aid and what doesn't work, and hopefully to inform policy and practices um, so that other centers can look at the structure of, of how we provide humanitarian aid and see where they can improve, hopefully. Mm. So is is addressing policy and, um, you know, how these organizations are structured, is that kind of the main avenue of, like, applied anthropology for you as far as this, this research goes? Yes, I really like to try to look at policy as well as practices. And I differentiate between that because there are a lot of practices that NGOs follow that are not in line with international refugee law. Mm-hmm. So I think it's very important to see the differences there and the gaps between policy and practices and to see how certain policies ne- negatively impact refugees. Uh, one such example is the Dublin Three Agreement that states that refugees must remain in the country in which they first apply for asylum. Mm-hmm. So if uh, someone arrives to Italy, um, and particularly Sicily, where they have a huge influx of refugees and migrants and are having trouble supporting um, the people that they have there, they cannot move to Germany or France um, or countries with a stronger economy and infrastructure. And this contributes to the marginalization of refugees because they can't even make it to a location where they can try to improve their lives um, because the place that they live, the Mm. economy cannot support them. Mm -hmm. So I think understanding these insights about policy um, can hopefully help improve policies and practices that adversely affect refugees. So I'm curious about that one little part that you um, read there. So the, the country that they apply for asylum, 
But I imagine if they're getting rescued in the ocean, they haven't applied for a, a asylum. No. To at least. So, you know, how does that work? You, you know, potentially they get they get rescued um, and then they go to these, you know, they go to like an emergency care facility first, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, and then so do they apply for asylum there or are they kind of in like a limbo situation where you're not really either one? Yes, actually, at first they are okay. kind of in a limbo situation. Um and they are taken to Italy. So m- most people that are rescued in the Mediterranean are taken to Italy or sometimes Mali. Um, but it's a much smaller country um, and takes a mu- uh, much less number of refugees. Um, but while they're at these first reception centers that I mentioned, that's the processing. That's where they're you know, applying for asylum and hopefully receiving permission to move on to a second reception center where they then, again, wait for these documents. Right. And so, you know, that sounds like their only option really is just to stay in Italy. Pretty right? much, and, yeah. And then, so what, you're, they're kind of dependent in a way on these reception centers and, and the care that they can be provided at whatever organization they're with, right? They are definitely, okay. and um, there's there's actually a limit. Um, even though the reception centers are not good, and I've talked about how they marginalize a lot of refugees and asylum seekers that are that are living there. Um, if refugees don't find a job after the maximum amount of time, which is typically about five years, they they end up homeless. Um, and I spoke with one individual um, who was from Somalia and had been in in Sicily for about 15 years so he migrated when he was um uh when he was a minor as well um and he had tried to move to the Netherlands to Germany and France to find work because he couldn't find work in Italy um and every time he got sent back um and so when I interviewed him he was homeless um spending his days at a local park and trying to find places to sleep at night um and he actually, I have a quote written down from him um, that I think really illustrates this. Uh, quote, the boys at the center, they still have hope, but I know what it's really like when you're here for many years. Um, so after I told him that I did research with minors at the at these centers, you know, he, he felt really negative about it because he had been at the center before, but he never received the opportunities like the boys did at Levita Bella and was not able to find employment anywhere um, and couldn't even move somewhere where he could find employment. Hmm. Yeah, that's, These are all, like, really tough steer, like stories to, to hear. They um, are, yeah. To, but yeah. It's, it's important that we pay attention to these difficult stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, a really, um, it's a really difficult subject to talk about, but... Yeah. It um, is obviously for them even more difficult to experience. Mm-hmm. And as I as I said before, you know, we, we see it on the news when a boat capsizes and everyone says how terrible it is. And then people turn off their TVs or close their computer and don't pay attention anymore. So it, it I think it's just really important that we pay attention to what happens afterwards, mm-hmm. um, after people arrive. And also what's causing people to leave their homes in the first place. Yeah. Um, however, that is outside of the, the scope of my research. I don't do research in in the home countries mm-hmm. of of these individuals. Right. You can only do so much. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, a lot of these issues they have larger and larger and larger uh, 
outer layers, you know, of, of complexity. And, and so you can only do so much. They do. Um, and and so I, I mean, like looking bigger, right? Like trying to figure out, well, okay, well, so who should be asking those questions? And, and um, uh, I, I mean, ideally, we, we have, again, speaking on behalf of the field and hopefully what the, the discipline of anthropology hopes to accomplish is um, really, really bringing these conversations, I mean, which are difficult to hear i mean how how people are treated how human beings are just kind of just um i mean left right they're just they're just left outside of society because they don't necessarily fit into the political structure that um is wanted or expected um but but really hopefully anthropology helps just add more narrative that that we can use to leverage and push and just just keep pushing and i don't know it's it's really frustrating to hear because, mm. I mean, like, like you can go back for many, many years to think, oh well, you know, when when did refuge when did the problem of there being refugees like when when did those those causes start to happen and and right. like how effectively did or did we not really address those things and and it's, it's just really frustrating because you can you can, in hindsight you can look back oh we sh- we probably should have done A B and C but I don't know so. Um, right. So yeah, it might be out of this, like out of the scope of this specific research project, but uh, we just have to we just have to keep pushing, pushing, and encouraging more people to ask those questions, mm-hmm. and really challenging the political structure and the authority, and just really challenging those decisions that are made that end up resulting in these in these situations where where this happens. Yeah. Exactly, and um, mm. and one thing I hope to look at is is the numbers uh, because actually this year there's been a decrease in the number of refugees and migrants arriving in Italy, um, and part of me thinks that that's due to the situation in Libya. Um, the after the Libyan civil war, there's just been a a decrease in regulation of migration and various armed militia groups are now controlling migration and that's what's leading to false imprisonment and slavery and human trafficking so it makes me wonder what's going on why why not as many people are are trying to make this trip across the mediterranean now so so you're i mean speculating i mean um that that the situation might might actually be worse than maybe it seems in libya yeah yeah definitely Mm -hmm. um like I said, I've only really seen this on one news outlet that I re- referenced earlier, and and that's one reason I like to talk about it is because it, I don't see it in the news. I don't see people talking about it. No one talks about what's going on in Libya, what's happening to um, people as they're trying to flee terrorist groups, um, yeah. familial violence, political persecution, all of these things. Um, where people are being tortured in prison um, and just facing horrific violence but it's not really being talked about these are kind of these are the kind of topics that are like out of sight out of mind exactly right so like yeah if it's not affecting your personal sphere of your daily life you know it's like out of sight out of mind right yeah Uh, i'm gonna be very critical right here but uh we pay a lot we pay a lot of attention to celebrities here in the united states and maybe we don't pay enough and we pay attention to some uh uh, political spectacles like uh, S- S- Syria, um, 
Mm. But, but we, we miss things that are happening in Libya or, or in the Democratic Republic of Congo or Yemen or right. um, I want to say I want to say Myanmar, but I'm not sure. I, I, mm-hmm. I feel like I've heard that. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's it's again, it's just really frustrating. Um, here I am being overly critical anthropologist of everything uh, <laughs> it, that's happening here in the, the, the society that I live in. But, um, yeah, it, it just really bugs me. And speaking on that, um, if I can go ahead and comment on what you were just saying, uh, you know, this is particularly relevant for women in Nigeria because when the girls were kidnapped, I forget how many years ago, uh, I mean, it was everywhere. It was all over social media, bring back our girls. But women are being trafficked every day from Nigeria to Italy. Not only women, but girls, minors, are being trafficked to Italy for sex work, for prostitution, um, and... And remain in systems of slavery after they arrive, so hmm. it's just another another layer, right. unfortunately. Yeah. So winding down the conversation, um, you know what? How far along in the in the PhD process are you? And you know, have you thought about thinking forward your plans for you know after after you get your PhD? What would you like to? Where okay. do you see yourself? Sure. Yeah, I am a first-year PhD student. Okay. So, so still have quite a bit of time left. Yeah. <laughs> Don't jump the gun, Spencer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But so. um, I I do want to uh, get a job in a university after I graduate, and there's two reasons for that. One is I I do love to teach. Um, like I said, I worked in a middle school in a popka for AmeriCorps. Um, I really enjoy being a TA. I was a TA during my master's program. Um, so I, I do like that, but I also want to continue to do research. So for me, a job at a university is a way that I can do both, um, and I hope to continue to do applied work through my research, um, applied in public anthropology, because I feel like that's really critical to our discipline right now. Um, if we're only talking to people um, in academia, then I don't feel like we're doing our job, and that's I think kind of the point of our program uh, mm. also, you know, mm-hmm. we're applied anthropology. We're trying to reach out to the community. Mm. So I hope to continue that in my career. Great. That's awesome. Yeah, and, yeah. and we hope that you're successful in that because. We do, yeah. Thank you. Not just not just personally because mm-hmm. we think that you should, should be successful, but because we think that overall that, that will have a positive impact. Right. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, I, I hope so, too. Mm. Great. So that's about all the time that we have this week. Um, you know, we're having a great conversation, but we only have an hour, so we got to wind it down eventually. Um, so first of all, we would like to thank Russell for volunteering to come and um, donate her precious time uh, <laughs> towards the end of the semester as yeah. everyone's winding down. Yeah, you're not going to get this time back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to, to come and speak with us. So thank you for that. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, so that was a great conversation. So you know, we, we love discussing that, that with you. Um, and so good luck moving forward with your research. Um, everyone, if you'd like um, a, a summary of what we talked about today, that's all on anthroalert.com. So you can go check that out if you would like to refresh your memory about what we spoke about or learn a little bit more. Um, other than that, we will be back next week. And um, we will see you then. <laughs>